This is episode 57 of the SSR podcast, and upon reflection, I'm pretty sure that I've gone on record telling you that approximately 47 of the books that we've covered on the show were my favorite when I was growing up. You might say that I'm prone to exaggeration, but I just say that I was a book-obsessed kid who claimed each and every story that I read was the best one yet. Every time I tell you that a book was my favorite, I really mean it, and this time is no exception. On today's episode, we're talking about Margaret Peterson Haddix's Running Out of Time, which was, yes, my favorite book. Running Out of Time was published in 1995. We open with Jessie, a 13-year-old girl living in Clifton, Indiana in the 1840s, or so she thinks. When dozens of children in the village come down with what appears to be a very serious illness, Jessie's mom, who happens to be the community's midwife and healer, drops a huge bomb on her daughter. Apparently, outside of the confines of Clifton, it's actually the year 1996. Clifton is really a tourist attraction known to the greater world as Clifton Village, a colonial Williamsburg of sorts where people can visit and watch other humans living their lives as if it's the mid-19th century. The founders of Clifton Village started with the best intentions, but over time, its origins have become a darker secret, and its residents have lost access to many of the things that were promised to them, including the modern medicine they need in order to battle the diphtheria outbreak that's now sweeping through the community. Jessie's mom asks her to escape to the outside world and contact a man named Isaac Neely, who she believes will help her track down the necessary medicine. Having never seen a pair of jeans, a telephone, or a car, Jessie has a lot to learn in order to save her town. Over the course of her adventure, she hops a ride on a bread truck, is taken in and nearly murdered by a fake Isaac Neely, calls a press conference on the steps of the state capitol in Indianapolis, and falls victim to diphtheria herself. This week's guest is Rebecca Fishbein, and it turns out that Running Out of Time was among her favorite reads as a kid, too. On this episode, we discuss our shared love of colonial Williamsburg, lament the lack of adventure books geared toward young girls, discuss accusations that the movie The Village was plagiarized from Margaret Peterson Haddix's book, and consider if its premise would be as shocking to kids in 2019 as it was to us in the 90s. We also chat about the ways in which developments in technology impact the way we read Running Out of Time, and unfortunately, identify a few plot points that don't hold up so well on the reread. Rebecca is a freelance writer and night blogger for Jezebel. Her first book, Good Things Happen to People You Hate, is out in October 2019. Follow Rebecca on Twitter at BeFishFish. Thanks so much to Rebecca for guesting. I also want to say a big thanks to all of SSR's Patreon sponsors. If you want to take a more active role in supporting the growth of the show, visit www.patreon.com slash SSRpodcast or go to www.ssrpodcast.com and click support for all the details. For just a few dollars every month, you'll get access to a handful of exclusive rewards, plus the satisfaction of knowing that you're keeping SSR going strong. You can also be a cheerleader for the show by following along on social media. We are at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find us on Facebook by searching The SSR Podcast. Your five-star ratings and reviews on iTunes also go a long way. The more ratings and reviews we have, the easier it is for new potential listeners to find the pod, and you know we need to spread the SSR love. With a few weeks left of summer, please allow me to remind you to check out Libra FM for all of your road trip and beach day listening needs. Libra FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. Choose from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libra FM, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know who I'm talking about. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. SSR listeners can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Go to Libro.fm, L-I-B-R-O F-M, and enter code SSRPOD when prompted. When I shop for audiobooks on Libro.fm, I support my local Brooklyn indie, Books Are Magic, but you can choose any store you want. Fellow book lovers, let's rally around the independent bookstore community. All right, looks like we're running out of time on this intro. Mm, that was a terrible joke. Let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Rebecca. Welcome to SSR. Hi, thank you for having me. 
So when you responded to my invitation to be on the show and you selected your book, I have to tell you that I kind of did like a little dance in my chair because I have been trying to get somebody to choose Margaret Peterson Haddix's Running Out of Time for a really long time, pun, running out of time, really a long time. I did not mean to do that so early in the show. And you chose it, and we're finally going to get to talk about it. So before we like can even get into this, I just have to say Running Out of Time was one of my most loved books in elementary school. And I've thought about it so much over the years, and I have a lot of thoughts now about why I've thought about it so much, which I'm hoping we'll get into. But I just have to let you know that I'm extremely grateful that you were the one to finally give me this opportunity. Oh, that's great. It was also one of my favorite books as, uh, I guess, like an eight to 10 year old. And I think about it all the time also. So when I saw it on the list, I was really excited because I, you know, don't get to talk about it that often. Can you share any more about like the memories that you had sort of before coming back to it for the podcast? Can you share any memories that you may have had then? Like what parts of it you think you may have liked the best? Anything that sticks out to you about that reading experience from when you were a kid? I think I read like thousands of books as a child. I would, you know, sit in the bookstore and read the books that my mother would by me and then leave. Um, so I don't remember most of them, but I, this one I remember really, really strongly. And I think it was sort of my first like action adventure book. Maybe, you know, like I don't think kids were having these like wild, like death defying, like kind of scary adventures, um, in the books that I was reading from like eight to 10. I think that's probably around when I read this. I also really loved historical villages, like in a, in a way that maybe was weird and unhealthy. Like, I went to colonial Williamsburg and it was the greatest trip of my youth. Um, oh my God. I'm so glad you said that because me too. I thought it was oh, just great. me. It was like my favorite trip of my, like I would I think I went once when I was three or four and I don't remember that very well, but I'm told that I was like a maniac because I loved it so much. And then we went a couple of other times when I was older and I was obsessed with it. Yeah, it was so, I remember that trip so well. I was probably in third grade and it was like, we got to, you know, go to the schoolhouse and eat at the tavern. And I, you know, wanted to like just run around pretending that I was living in Colonial Williamsburg without like adults telling me that I had to calm down. Um, yeah, totally. So I actually really, I mean, obviously Clifton Village has some problems, but I really wanted to visit Clifton Village after reading this book and like get to play in the blacksmith house and, you know, see what life was like in the 1840s. So I definitely liked that. And I mean, I don't remember exactly why this book stuck with me. I, I don't remember exactly what it was like reading it for the first time because I probably read it like 15 times. Like I read books over and over again. So I probably read it like 15 times when I was young, but I just thought like it was so fast paced and scary. And like, there were all of these twists and you kind of had to like figure out what was going on. And I thought that that was really fun. It was maybe a little bit above my age level when I first hit it. Yeah. I thought it was really cool and like scary and a little like heavier than some of the, you know, I can't remember what I was, everything that I was reading at the time, but I was definitely reading a lot of like Sweet Valley High books, and they weren't as exhilarating. I echo a lot of what you said. Clearly, our shared love for Colonial Williamsburg, which I think really unites us at a level that I could not have expected when we jumped <laughs> on this recording today. I think the action-adventure concept also, you know, I relate to that. I think this is sort of like a gendered thing, at least in my experience as well. Like most of the books that I read as a little girl who loved reading and most of the books that were quite frankly handed to me by parents and teachers and librarians were books featuring girl protagonists. And very few of those books featured a lot of action and a lot of adventure or high stakes. And I think that that is not necessarily the case with kid lit featuring boy characters in the lead roles. Um, I remember reading Hatchet for the first time, and that's a book that we're, we're actually covering in a couple of weeks on the podcast. And it blew my mind because I had never read a book that felt like so intense and so active, but nobody had handed that book to me. Like I came to that book because I'd read pretty much everything else in the library that had ever been suggested to me. And so I started to read these books that I'd really only ever seen my boy classmates picking up. And we can argue all day, of course, sort of like why that works the way it does, why it has been a problem for kids in the past, um, and hopefully sort of the benefits of it changing going forward as we're having different kinds of conversations about gender, especially with kids. Um, but that was sort of my experience, was that like, 
certainly reading action adventure books was new for me and having a girl sort of being at the forefront of it made it that much more exciting because I think I may have read Hatchet around the same time and maybe when I was a little bit younger. So I don't know if that experience is familiar to you at all, but I think to have like this really kind of badass girl involved in an action adventure story was especially exciting to me. So I think that also, I was actually thinking about that today when I was, you know, thinking about things that I really liked about this book. And I definitely didn't notice it at the time, which I think is like a really interesting way to think of how representation is so important because it's it's sort of subconscious. Like I didn't realize that there weren't that many girl characters who were like kicking butt and, you know, trying to take on the science industry. Um, (laughs) Biomedical research. Yeah. I'm not quite sure. Some of the plot points in this book maybe come out of nowhere. But yeah, yeah, when I was a kid, I really loved like Star Wars and Indiana Jones and these like action adventure, Back to the Future. And these were all things that starred that men got to have the adventures. And like maybe some women came along for the ride, but it was the focus was really on the men. Um, And I probably didn't realize when I read this when I was 10 however old I was that I wasn't getting fed that frequently, like in, in books that, you know, the women, the girl characters were sort of more maternal. And I'm thinking about like the boxcar children, like the sister was taking care of the family in sort of a motherly way. And the adventures were really in large part left to boy characters, which I think now has changed. I mean, you know, we didn't have like the Hunger Games when we were kids, but I, right. the Hunger Games is like, you know, there's a woman at the forefront or girl character at the forefront. But yeah, Jessie, so she, if she's 13 in the book, she was significantly older than me when I read it the first time. And so she was like cool and adventurous and brave and climbs out of a window to escape death. Reading it as an adult, I'm like, who let this 13 year old child do all of these things? <laughs> right. Who sent you out into danger actively? Right. Like, I hope that my mother wouldn't be like, yes, young child, you go and like get yourself killed, please. But yeah, so that is a really interesting point. I also thought about that. Yeah, something that I totally wasn't aware of in the moment. But now in hindsight, I'm like, I wonder if this is why it felt so different was I just had not encountered a character like this before. Like a lot of the other female book characters that I admired most were like really smart or really like resourceful or curious. Um, And those were all qualities that I related to. And I think I sort of like saw myself in those characters, whereas somebody like Jessie was so removed from who I was as a kid and who I am now as an adult. Like she's so brave and so like physically brave, which I thought was really cool. And I wonder if that's part of why the book stood out for me so much as a as a kid and and like I said like I've thought about this book so much and it's not one that you hear about a ton there are a few people who I've chatted about it with over the last couple of months and starting the podcast who have seen me mention it across our social media so I do think that there's like a group of people that have a lot of love for this book. I think it's probably one of those where like when people see the title right now, they're going to be like, oh, I remember it, like excited yeah. to hear about it. But I don't know that it's one, it's not one that's like out there being discussed very often, but I was certainly excited to discuss it just to kind of give a refresher to listeners who read the book and haven't thought about it in a while or to listeners who don't know what we're talking about at all. This book was written by Margaret Peterson Haddix in 1996. The premise is that we meet this girl, Jessie. She's 13. When we meet her, she is living in 1840 in a village called Clifton, Indiana. She seems pretty happy. She has five siblings, a cool dad, a nice mom who is like the village healer, essentially. Officially, she's the midwife, but she kind of like handles all of the illnesses in the village. And we realize pretty quickly that there's some weird things going on in the village. Her mother's been out basically every night taking care of sick kids. And Jessie is always asked to tag along to like help her mom out. And it becomes clear that there's like a very intense illness being spread. We later find out that it's diphtheria. And um, I think within like 30 or 35 pages, we've already gotten like the big revelation from her mother, Ma, of course, as she's called, which is that it's actually 1996 in the real world. And years earlier, Ma and Pa moved to what has been like 
designed as a tourist attraction called Clifton Village, sort of a stepped up version of Colonial Williamsburg, where these people are living there 24-7 so that people can watch them. And there are a lot of promises made to them about like modern medical care being made available and an easy out offered whenever anybody wanted to leave and those things have been rolled back. It's become a much more oppressive environment and these kids clearly need help and nobody is offering them medical care. So it is up to Jesse to go out into the world and get the help they need. One of my favorite elements of this part of the book, which I didn't realize as a kid was kind of crazy and silly, is that like the main reason that Jessie is the one to go out into the world is because she's the only one who can wear Ma's old jeans. Like it comes down to wardrobe. Yeah, I noticed that too. I mean, I guess it makes sense. Like, you know, over time bodies change, but I'm sure that there was some way that Ma could have escaped. But no, Jesse, Jesse did it. The, the child went I, to go save Clifton. I just think it's such a <laughs> testament to like the way that we as kids will just like buy in to like, well, of course it has to be Jesse. Like nobody else could do it. It, yeah. it must be her. But as an adult, I'm like, I feel like there probably was like another adult who was maybe on Ma's side, who saw that there were these issues going on, who was maybe smaller, who could have worn them. No, but it, it only was Jesse. And um, I just, I love thinking about things the way that kids think about them and, and realizing like, oh, well, that, that was a foregone conclusion to me when I was little. There are so many plot holes in this book that I definitely did not notice as a child. And as an adult, I'm like, okay, we should talk about this. But yes. What are Art. some other of the, of the key plot holes that were maybe disappointing to you as an adult? Well, first of all, as a writer, I will say that as exhilarating as Haddock's prose is, she does spend a lot of time explaining things. Like, just a lot of adults will just explain things to Jesse in these, like, big soliloquies. And it is sort of from a writer's perspective. It's really the only way that Jesse gets any information is when, like, so the big twist is that can we tell the, the oh, big yeah. twist is that she yeah. it's 1996 actually in the outside world and she's escaping and she ends up like trying to find she's trying to find this guy Isaac Neely who was somebody who was against Clifton Village when it was first started and she ends up like kind of falling into a trap like the big twist is that the guy she thinks is Isaac Neely is actually this guy Frank Lyle who's a scientist and the reason that Clifton Village was actually started is because they wanted to basically create a generation of humans that were immune to diseases. So they were trying to introduce, you know, strains of diphtheria and I guess other, you know, diseases that we now vaccinate against, which is also an interesting whole other conversation. What a time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what a time to discuss vaccination as a concept. Yeah. Seriously. So these like, you know, they're trying to basically kill off a population to see who survives to create this stronger breed of people. So that's the big twist is when she discovers that Isaac Neely isn't really her and she escapes and like calls a press conference and saves Clifton Village. Yeah. So, I mean, there are a lot of plot holes. One of them is that, so if it's 1840 in Clifton Village now, mm -hmm. like how will the progression of time work in the village? Because eventually it's going to be 1880, you know, like, so does it change each year? Like, do they have new inventions? I, I'm sort of confused. I was thinking about that too. It, it is sort of like a big question that I'm sure, or I like to think that Margaret Peterson Haddock's like kind of thought about it for a second and then it's like it's too much like I can't I yeah. can't even begin I have the same question because it seems like the adults in Clifton Village are very well set up to sort of introduce kids to this exact time period and we're meant to believe that like I think they've been there for about 10 years. So I think we're meant to believe that they've done a pretty good job of presenting 1830 to 1840 pretty well, right. pretty accurately. Like things have evolved, things have changed. But it's like there's this, it's a village of I think less than 100 people. It's really small. So it's like are these outside forces just going to come in and randomly like drop off the inventions that would have been introduced in the corresponding real-time years? In those Clifton Village years, are there going to be these outside forces working to help the Clifton Village adults to like keep the community on track with what actually happened in history? Is there an end date? I had a similar thought, like what's the greater plan? And I think maybe we're meant to believe that like they weren't thinking about that. I mean, if, if we are to step back and actually try to reason this out, it's like Miles Clifton and Frank Lyle 
really didn't have an intention of allowing this to go on forever. Or if they did, I don't know that they actually cared about it being a snapshot of history. Like you said, the priority has become this medical research. So it's like, maybe it doesn't matter to them. Maybe they're not thinking clearly about how long it's going to last or how it's going to look from a historical accuracy perspective. I don't know. Maybe they just, it doesn't matter to them. But to me, as somebody who is, you know, of all the things that are interesting to me in this book, I think just this like concept of Clifton Village is the most fascinating. And so I, I share those questions with you and that's kind of what I want to know more about. But I think if you're looking at it from more of like an action adventure perspective, it's like maybe those things don't matter. Right. I mean, I definitely didn't think about it when I, you know, read this book the first 10 times. But yeah, no, as, as like a, an adult with a, a mind of reasoning, I, I'm sort of confused as to exactly how that how that would work. And I, I actually do want to know more about like Clifton Village. Like I sort of almost wish we spent a little bit more time in the village. I will say that I very much enjoyed the scene where she goes through the village as a tourist. Yeah. That was fascinating. And like, you can see like these kids watching and she's with these like modern, she escapes and she is in the Clifton village, like tourism area. And she kind of like hops onto a school tour. And so she sees all these kids who are, you know, 1996 children who are looking at her friends and family. And like, she's kind of seeing the world from their eyes. She also acclimates to 1996 way faster. Like, I think that if you had said to me, actually it's the year 2170 and everything flies now. I would, I would take like more time to be like, I don't have any idea what's going on or how to open doors or like, she like learns how to use a sink right away and a toilet. And then she's like, Oh, a car weird. I'm going to hop onto it. And she's resourceful. Well, you were kind of pointing toward this a little bit earlier when we were talking about how so much of what's explained to Jesse or so much of what Jesse discovers comes to her in these, these like very long winded paragraphs of prose from adults. And to me, that's just sort of a case of like telling and not showing. And I think it's sort of similar to the way that she acclimates. It's like Margaret Peterson Haddix will write a sentence that's like, Jesse didn't know what a phone was. And then it's like, oh, she figured out what the phone was. So it's sort of just like telling, like, this is Jesse confused and this is Jesse not confused instead of us getting a chance to like really be a fly on the wall as Jesse is like figuring out all of this stuff because of course she's going to be overwhelmed and she has some moments of overwhelm, but I think that there's a lot of things that are explained away just by like snappy writing, acknowledging that things are overwhelming and different, but then being like, oh, but Jesse is resourceful, so she's going to figure it out. And I think a little bit more showing would have been more interesting to me as an adult reader. Yeah, I will say as an adult reader, you know, Margaret Peterson Haddix is definitely writing for a certain demographic that I'm no longer a part of. And she's not, you know, she's not a great technical writer. Like she's a good storyteller, but I will say that I was definitely, you know, there are books that I've reread and I've been like, this is still a really good book, Mm -hmm. um, even as an adult. And I wouldn't necessarily tell a bunch of adults to like run out and get running out of time just because, you know, sometimes you're just like, okay, there's a scene at the end where she throws this press conference and connects with one of the journalists. And then he shows up at the end of the book and just like, she's like, what's going on? And he just explains everything that's been going on for like four days. It's, it's like an explanation of four days slash like 15 years worth of plot. And you're like, well, you know, we, we didn't, we could have like seen it happen a little bit more. Yeah. I made a note in the margin of that last chapter or the last, you know, the second to last chapter, whenever it was, where I was like, this decision to write the scene this way probably saved the author like a couple of days worth of writing, like actually plotting out the scenes as they happened. And I think, you know, maybe part of it is that she knew that a lot of this was going to be very confusing to kids. And I, I think like, I was sort of surprised by how how high stakes some of this stuff was and like how adult a lot of this was, not necessarily in terms of like, you know, so much of what we read on the show, when we talk about adult themes, it's more about like sex and drinking and drugs. I think in this book, it's much more like intellectually, like these are kind of hard things to wrap your head around. Yeah. And I'm sure as a kid, I didn't understand a lot of them. And the only reason that I feel like wrapping up some of these loose ends in one scene with the journalist, like this is a good choice, is that like it was a very direct way to answer Jesse's questions, which are coming from a kid perspective in a way that would be like accessible to kid readers. Because I think to introduce a lot of those things that the 
end would be kind of crazy, like scientific research and like trying to create a perfect gene pool and like, oh, your parents have been taken into custody and like, we're still debating whether or not you should be reunited with your family. Um, Those are heavy topics. And I just wonder if at a certain level, the author was like, you know what, like, I'm just going to find an adult who's going to explain this to the kids in like a very straightforward Q&A format. That being said, like as an, as a reader now, it was boring and I wish that we'd seen more of it play out in real time. Yeah. I will say that I think as a kid, I was probably more invested in some of the, like the action scenes. Like there's a scene where, uh, these two boys like kind of drive up in a car and like try and get her to come into the car, which looking reading this as an adult, I'm like, this is actually like deeply terrifying. Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm scared reading this. I know that she's going to be fine. Cause I read right. the whole book and also her just escaping from the village. And there's a scene where she tries to escape the fake Isaac Neely by climbing out a window. And that's described in like great detail detail. She's literally like climbing down bricks to get out of the building. So I really enjoyed like that description. And I think as a kid, I probably would have been like, I don't really care so much about this like scientific research. I want to see her like run away and escape death, which she does several times. But yeah, like as an adult, I'm definitely like, I mean, even just like the big reveal is Ma is Ma being like, by the way, it's 1996. Um, let me tell you all about the world outside right. for three paragraphs. Also, I don't know if I noticed, I don't remember like if I knew before I read this book that it was actually 1996. I'm not sure if I read it thinking that it took place in 1840 and was then like, oh, I the twist is there. Or if I'd read, I think I got this from Scholastic Books and they have like usually a little blurb explaining what's going on. So I may have known but it's really obvious in the first like couple of chapters that they're not living in the 1840s. Like they keep talking about like the magic boxes, glass boxes that are in the trees. And like, it's weird that we're not allowed to say, okay, and shut up. And like, I think they weren't allowed to use the word stupid either. Like there were a couple of words and so much was made of it. It was like over and over again, Jesse was like, oh no, like that's against the rules. And they always had to say the year it was. That was what really jumped out to me this time around, where, like, the teacher, every time they answer a question or something, they have to remind the class what year it is. And Jesse's like, that's stupid. Everybody knows what year it is. Yeah, there are a lot of things where it's like, Jesse thought it was strange. Interesting. Yeah, so you're like, "Mm, well, you know, it's not an M. Night Shyamalan twist, which... Yeah, let's talk about that. The plot of the village is clearly stolen from this book. I mean, I guess I'm, I doubt that like anyone read this book when they wrote the script to the village, but oh my God, it's just the same plot. There are some people that might disagree with you. There's a lot out there sort of accusing um, the production company of plagiarism. There's actually an article that I found in the New York Times from 2004 when the village came out, the headline of which is author says new film is similar to her novel. Um, and I guess Margaret Peterson Haddix got a bunch of emails right after the movie came out and being like, uh, FYI, you might want to go see this movie. It feels really similar to The Village. She went to see it and she became understandably concerned that yeah. her plot was just lifted for this movie. Um, I found all of these blog posts with like long lists of similarities between the book and the movie, which I could go through, but just a few highlights. People in both are living in a make-believe 19th century rural village when outside it's it's 1996. It's the same year in both the book and the movie. It's not just like, oh, we're living in the future in real, you know, it's not just like in the movie they're living in 1999 or something. It's like exactly the same year in both the book and the movie. There's sort of a vulnerable girl who's sent out to seek vital medicine and she has to bring it back home to cure loved ones. There's sort of this external male assistance that's expected from both of these girls. So there's like a lot of key similarities and I have this very clear memory of going to see the village when it came out and I was really excited to see it because I was not a kid that liked scary things I still don't like to see scary movies that was probably the one only scary movie that I've ever seen in the theaters and my stepmom brought me to see it because she had seen it and loved it and was like oh you're gonna think this this movie's great and I remember walking out of it and being like, I'm telling you, I read this book. And she's like, yeah. there's not a book. Like, this is just the movie. Isn't it cool? I've never heard of anything like this. And I was just trying to explain to her that I had just read, you know, within the past few years, a book that was the exact same story. And for so long, like, I couldn't let go of the fact that it felt like the same thing to me. And it sort of made me feel better, like, 
just doing a quick Google search and seeing that there are all of these people that have a similar concern. Well, so I knew, I, I guess, I think The Village came out in 2004, mm-hmm. which is exactly, again, it's like, okay, so you picked 1996 to be the year when this movie, right. it was made in 2004. Just do 2005, then maybe people will be less on to you. So I knew that there was all of this controversy about The Village and the plot. I tend to learn horror movie spoilers because I'm scared of horror movie. It's like reading the Wikipedia plot before you see the horror movie so that you're not, you know, you're not surprised when somebody gets decapitated. (laughs) So I knew that there was this controversy and I was like, well, it can't be that similar. And then I watched The Village and I was like, this is the exact same plot. This is the same plot as Running Out of Time, which I probably had read, you know, a dozen times when I saw The Village. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to give people the benefit of the doubt by being like they didn't actively plagiarize like a, a children's book, but it does seem pretty. It does seem pretty shifty. It's like a it's suspicious. definitely. Yeah, it's definitely um, the 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 similarities are, are really extreme. Um, although I guess in the um, in running out of time, like the village was created because people just really wanted to live in the 1840s, and then in um, the village, it was that they just wanted to be like completely removed from society. Yeah, sorry to spoil the village, but um, <laughs> spoilers have- for both the book and the movie in yeah. this podcast episode. Who knew? You haven't, you know, I think you have like a, there's like a one year, you know, spoiler respite. So yeah, we're well out of the woods on both. The woods. (laughs) (laughs) So for me, the biggest plot hole was that Jessie wasn't more upset that she'd been lied to her whole life. Like you said, it's sort of like a three paragraph description from Ma where she basically is like, sorry about this. We've been living a lie since you were born. Um, I know it feels really crazy and complicated. I don't really understand it either. Things have changed. It sucks now, but like that was never our intention. Sorry again. We didn't mean for this to happen. And Jesse is like confused and a little overwhelmed, I think, with questions about it, but she doesn't seem angry. She doesn't really have any sort of emotional reaction. It's a much more intellectual reaction, I think. And reading it now as an adult, I'm like, that is absurd that she wouldn't have some sort of a tantrum, like whether she just would like break out in tears because her whole life has been a lie or whether she'd be mad at her parents. Like there has to be more feeling in this for her. So not only that, but then I was struck by like at the end of the book, Jessie apparently has had diphtheria the whole time she ends up in a hospital. And like, then she wakes up and all of her siblings are there and like the children from the village and the children are like, yeah, we all found out it's 1996. There are cars. This is so cool. And I was like, all like maybe, you know, as a small child, I obviously didn't understand like mental health, but like these children should see people to talk like this is like a a terrifying thing to happen to a kid to find out that like your whole life has been a lie in the world that you knew is just like oh pa went to see a psychiatrist that I also was like very struck by the plot line of like their father who is a big Andrew Jackson fan Mm -hmm. uh, which maybe as a kid I didn't like pick up on as a maybe not the best president to Stan. But also, it's just like the kids are just going to go to a modern school and like catch up on the last 150 years. And like, I don't know, there, there, there's a lot of stuff that you realize as an adult that like maybe kids' brains don't think about or they don't really care. Like, you don't really care about, you know, how the kids are feeling. You just want to know, you know, feelings are not things that you maybe understand fully um, as a kid. You just want to know about the adventure. But yeah, everyone was really cool with finding out that, you know, their whole lives had been a lie and the world was completely different. It's like, but cool, we get to ride in cars now. That's awesome. Yeah, the sister finds makeup. She's like, wow, this is so great. My lips look redder. I'm like, shouldn't you talk to somebody about this? <laughs> yeah, and they really acclimate to this new world very quickly. I mean, maybe kids are actually really good at acclimating to new situations, but I said this before, like, Jessie just kind of finds her way to Indianapolis, which I just, I can't believe that her mother was like, yeah go out into the world by yourself and like a world that you've never seen before and like find this man. Like how was she, she doesn't know how to use a phone. Like she doesn't know how to like take a bus. How was she supposed to do that? Right. But she did. Well, and Ma's plan for her made me so aware of how much technology has changed too. And, and even the way that she conducts herself once she's escaped and is like calling the news conference and all these things. The fact that Ma felt that she could be so direct as to write down the name, somebody's name and be like, find a payphone, make a call, and then you'll find him. In some ways, is, is so naive, of course, because she's been living in this underground village for years, so she doesn't yeah. understand that 
things have probably changed and there's a lot more people and maybe it's harder to get a hold of somebody. But I, I just made me realize in 2019, like it would be in some ways it would be so much easier to find somebody in yeah. 2019, but it would also be so much more complicated. Like it would be so much more difficult to trust that you were finding the right person. There would be so many different avenues that you could use to find somebody. There would be thousands of people potentially with the same name. You'd be dealing with like catfishing, like all of these other things. Whereas when this book was written in 1995 and certainly when Ma sort of like went underground in the 80s, it was much more straightforward than that. Yeah. Imagine trying to tell a child who thinks that it's 1840, like how to Google somebody, like just explaining, like, I mean, these are words that didn't exist when this book was written. And now trying to explain to somebody like, yeah, you're going to open up your laptop and Google this name. And like, there's going to be all of these social media accounts and like, maybe his Twitter will be verified. So you know that that's him and you can send him a DM and then, you know, then you can Uber to his house they should really actually do an updated version of this book and like try and try and throw in all of our new tech terms. Cause yeah, 1996 is high tech for 1840, but it is low tech for the 21st century. It's amazing what has changed in that time. And especially with the news conference, I was thinking like when she went into the phone booth and like goes through and just starts like finding local news stations and newspapers and just starts calling them like at their front desks and being like, okay, if anybody would like to come to a news conference, it's going to be happening on the Capitol at this time. Now, I mean, really any 13 year old could could make a similar effort, it certainly wouldn't be successful because there's just so much information going around all the time. Everything's oversaturated. But as a 13-year-old, you could make lots of attempts to call a news conference. Whereas when this book was written in 1995, it was probably a big deal just to wrap your head around the idea that a kid would think to do this. And now it's like, as a 13-year-old, you could put out any kind of idea to millions of people just by tweeting it. Yeah. I mean, I was thinking actually when she, she calls the state board of health and like, if she had called the state board of health and been like, hi, I have escaped from Clifton village. Like I need to talk to somebody about what's going on there. Like there's a serious public health crisis. Like children are dying of diphtheria. Probably somebody on the phone would be like, okay, let me put you in touch with somebody. But she's like on the phone being like, I'm calling about the diphtheria and Clifton, Mr. Neal, you know, like she's like not giving information that would be usable for, you know, a staff person answering the phones at the state board of health, which maybe a kid wouldn't have thought to present all of the information in like a digestible way for an adult to understand that this is like, but I do also think in children's books, kids are able to do a lot of things that like, when you're an adult, you're like, you you wouldn't be able to do that as a kid. I mean, there's this whole book that I remember reading that I also really loved called The Kid Who Ran for President about a 12-year-old who runs for president. Mm-hmm. That was another favorite. And like, let's say you're reading a book like that when you're eight and the main character is 12 or 13. You're like, yeah, of course they would be able to do that because they're so grown up and like they're four years older than me. Like you can, you can call a press conference, but I don't think that in, in, real life people would be listening to 13 year olds and show up at their press conference. Well, I thought it was <laughs> weird when people listened to her and when they didn't like yeah. these adults chose to show up to the press conference because there had been rumblings about like a sudden closure of Clifton village, which I also was like, how big of a deal is this Clifton village place? It didn't seem during her tour, like it was that massive of an attraction. So I didn't quite understand like why, whether or not this attraction is open or closed is such a big deal that it will potentially bring a bunch of skeptical journalists to a news conference called by a kid like that didn't quite track for me so they showed up but then when she was trying to explain like all these kids have diphtheria it's really dangerous people are dying we need help they're like we're not sure that we can believe you Um, right and that's why I was like you know again I understand that some of this is just to create narrative tension and then it gives Margaret Peterson Haddix the chance to bring in this factoid that we learned earlier in the book where Jesse and her friends and siblings learn everything by recitation. And so Jesse gets to prove that she's from quote unquote, like real 1840 by reciting all of the presidents that she knows in this very rote kind of way. So it gives us a chance to like circle back to some of those details. Again, like I understand why it was sort of a strategic move in that way. But like when you think about the moments when people trust Jesse versus the moments when they're not at all concerned about what she's telling them, it just doesn't make sense. Yeah, I know it's true. It's, I, I mean, as a journalist, I don't think that we would ever show up to a press conference that wasn't like officially 
called, you know, you get like a press release for a press conference. So nobody would like answer the phone and be like, yeah, we're going to go to this thing. But then once you have this kid who's like, hello, all of my friends are dying of diphtheria. Like that's usually when, you know, as a journalist, you'd be like, okay, like tell me more information about this. Like I'll look into that. You know, why would a 13 year old call a press conference? And then very conveniently she passes out because it turns out another spoiler alert. She has had diphtheria the whole time. Also, I thought it was interesting that diphtheria was the disease that's in this one, because I, I think it's the same disease that was killing the children in Balto, which was another sort of like action adventure, try to get kids the medicine kind of plot. So I feel like as a kid, I was very familiar with diphtheria. I think <laughs> I was like highly aware of diphtheria as well. I, I remember reading a lot of books that were based around the time period that we're meant to believe Clifton Village is existing in. And so yeah. as you said, like I can't remember how much I knew about the book going into it. I don't know sort of how vague the cover copy was at that time and um, if I really knew that there was going to be this type of twist but reading about a community in 1840 felt very familiar to me and very natural to me because I just I feel like there was a lot of historical fiction geared at kids that was like very popular in the 90s and so diphtheria was like commonplace in these kinds of books so I don't know if it's just sort of become almost a shorthand for like the things that got you sick in the 19th century but I was like yeah diphtheria of course like that's what you would have yeah they they were also really obvious about the medication being stopped early on in this book because uh Jesse's like yeah there was this doctor and he'd make this big show and be like you put three pieces of John's wart on it and then like clap your hands five times and you know obviously that's because the tourists want to see this like old-timey medicine then he would like pass these magic pills under the table and everyone would be healed and you know then the pills stop I mean the the plot is laid out it's laid on pretty thick I will say there were a few sort of more subtle plot points that came back in a way that I thought was actually really that was more artfully done um the environmentalist that she comes across in particular right after she escapes she's really thirsty she finds this creek and she thinks it's the same creek that she and her friends drink from in Clifton Village um and so she is gonna like sit down and have lunch and she really wants to take a drink of water and of course like just as she's getting ready to sip a gulp of water from her hands this man that she describes as overweight comes like rushing up and is like you can't drink that it's dangerous um it turns out that he's an environmentalist he owns the property that she's on um, and he's like you can be on my property I'm not going to give you a hard time about that but you will potentially die if you drink that water and um at first it just kind of seems like this scene to give jesse an opportunity to like test her trust in people because after that he offers to invite her to his house and like give her fresh water and like let her use the phone she's like i don't know about this i'm trying to be careful and so she decides to go on her way and go to a gas station to find a phone instead so at first it seems like that was the purpose for the scene but later on when she's at so-called isaac neely's apartment as she's getting ready to go to bed he gives her a glass of water and you know it's a little forceful about how he like pushes her to try to drink it and that part I could have done without but I did like the fact that you know she's looking at this glass of water and she's like I'm remembering this environmentalist guy and maybe I shouldn't trust this water either so I think there were like a few little plot points that came back in a way that I didn't necessarily see coming that worked really well and that was one of them and even the rote memorization thing with the president's like that's not a detail that I would have necessarily thought would come in handy later or that we would ever hear about again. And the fact that it does prove useful, even though it was in a way that I don't think was necessary, as we were talking about, like the journalists probably right. should have listened to certain things and ignored others. And if she starts talking about diphtheria, they should have paid attention and not asked her to prove it. But I did like that like some of those details came back in, in handy later on. I remember reading that scene with the water. Really, I, I remember it very clearly when I was a kid because when she's she pours out the water and I think I remember being like that has to be important why would she pour out the water and then I'm like there's this scene where she overhears fake Isaac Neely which okay as an adult this is ridiculous he just explains to somebody on the phone exactly what he's gonna do and like what he's like I'm gonna kill her she knows too much I told her everything like we need to you know do this for the sake of the scientific project but like as a kid I remember reading that and being like oh my god he's going to kill her. She's in danger. Like my heart was pounding. Like I was really, this, the book is done very well from a visual perspective. It is very like easy to visualize exactly what she's doing. 
um, and exactly what the scene looks like. Like, uh, Haddox does a really good job of describing what she's wearing and like what she sees. And so as a kid, you're really able to like be in the story as an adult. You're kind of like, you're making this really obvious, but it was a really good scene. And then, yeah, she has to like figure out what to do really quickly. I think part of why the visuals work so well is because Jesse is seeing so many things for the first time. And so everything is being explained in such detail. Like I made a note next to the um, paragraph where Jesse is experiencing jeans for the first time. And she like mm-hmm. is given Ma's pair of jeans and she's describing them. And she's never seen a pair of pants like this. She's never seen a woman wear pants before because all of the women in Clifton wear dresses and skirts. So I think that like as tedious as some of the details felt to me as an adult, big picture, the fact that it was so descriptive made for a, a really visually well done story because we really had the benefit of getting a description of everything. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think that there was, it, it was really well done. I, I, one of the things I really liked about it actually, when I was a child was how well it was described. Like I loved the way that the clothing was described and I loved the way like she would describe all the food, like her, she describes wonder bread at some point and it's so perfect. It's this like soft, like useless bread. And it's not like the crusty fresh bread her mom makes. And it was really like, as a kid, you can, you can taste it, you know, you can like feel the way that she's experiencing the world. And I, I really enjoyed that. I actually would have liked to have seen Clifton village a little bit sharper. Like I think that yeah. We sort of spend not enough time there because she has to escape. It's more like what she sees out in the 1996 world, but I would have liked to have seen more of the 1840 world as a historical village enthusiast. I agree with you that the scene of her touring it was really interesting. and Because in that scene, we got a better sense of what the village was like at the same time as she was starting to get a better understanding of like what the attraction was really about and sort of what the situation that she found herself in what those like machinations really were and I sort of just like didn't get a sense of the scale of the attraction like I couldn't figure out is this actually cool like would I have wanted to go here as a kid and I would have liked to get a better sense of that just because it didn't make sense I couldn't figure out like so they have this seemingly expansive world that they're all living in in fake 1840 but it has to be contained in a pretty serious way if it's essentially like it's almost, it felt like a zoo in some ways. Like it can't physically be that big, but the characters seem to think that it goes on and on. And so I just had a lot of questions about that. And I think part of it is just because that's the part of the book that's most interesting to me. Um, And I just like wanted more details. Yeah. I would have liked to have spent more time in the tourist attraction. And also I liked when she was interacting with kids, her own age in the modern world. And I, I would have liked to have seen more of that. A lot of this is like Jesse facing off against adults. And I think it would have been interesting to like, there's a scene where she almost befriends somebody for a minute. And, you know, I would have liked to have seen her eat lunch with this kid and like maybe not ask the questions that she's asking in the book. The the girl that she's talking to is like a person of color and she like wanted to ask her questions about that. And I was like, maybe, maybe let's not do that in this book. But um, she, <laughs> she doesn't get a chance. So. I had such mixed feelings about that because I did appreciate the fact that like realistically, if this girl is coming from 1840 and has never met a person of color before, then it does make sense that she would see a child of color and be like surprised and be like a little bit taken off guard. So in some ways I was happy that Margaret Peterson Haddix like addressed that, especially because in the nineties, like, and now too, I mean, we're still dancing around so many of those conversations. So I was glad that it came up, but I agree with you that like some of the questions that Jesse was thinking through in our head were a little bit unnecessary. Yeah, they're not great. Uh, if you if this book gets rewritten in 2019, I would not add them in. But I did want to see her interact with the kids. I liked how she described how they were dressed and like how they interacted with each other and how they all were like, you know, bored and not respecting the teacher. And also when I read this book the first time, these kids were older than me. So mm-hmm. like I was envisioning like it's really interesting when you read a book where the protagonist was older than you when you'd read it the first time and then you read it as an adult and you're able to see how young they are. But like as a nine-year-old or whatever, the 12 to 13 to 14-year-olds who were in line to see Clifton Village were teenagers. They were like cool and scary and adult. So I would have enjoyed more of that. But it was really like, it's, it's so well done in a visual sense. Like this is why it's so exciting. It is a really exhilarating action 
book. I would actually like to see the film version of this as opposed to the village. Mm-hmm. You know, like I want to see a 13 year old, like dodge environmentalists. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, maybe yeah. sort of less sinister outright horror kind of approach, more like adventure take on it. Yeah. The one other specific thing that I wanted to touch on before we start to wrap up is Pa, because we mentioned him briefly, but I think he's a really interesting character. My feelings about him, I certainly like would not have had any idea about as a kid. It's definitely something that you read into more as an adult. And I wanted to read a few things that I pulled out of the book that I just thought were interesting just in terms of like how Ma and Pa found their way to Clifton, because I think it speaks a lot to like what we're meant to believe about Pa. So when Ma is telling Jesse the truth about their life and about their village um she starts to explain what brought people there and she says people predicted a lot of crazies and maybe they were right some people volunteered for clifton because they thought the united states had become very sinful they thought they could practice their religion better in the 1800s some people were running away from something in their 20th century lives others were environmentalists pa i think was the only person who just plain wanted to live in the 1800s And I was too much in love with him to tell him no. And later on, Jesse is like, again, trying to get a handle on like why she has to be the one to go save the day and why Ma can't do anything. And Ma is trying to explain that like she's tried to talk to her husband about it and isn't getting anywhere. And she says, I think he's forgotten. This isn't 1840. At first, I thought he was protecting me, not letting me speak of anything else. But now it's different. Um, It just seems like he's gotten so deep into Clifton it's almost delusional um, how little regard he has for like the true dangers that are present because they're not actually living in 1840. He is trained as a blacksmith in the modern world. He got really intensely into blacksmithing, which was part of why he wanted to move to Clifton because it's like the only place that he can use this skill that he's acquired. As you said, he has this obsession with Andrew Jackson. So he's an interesting guy. I think like Corky would be putting it generously. But at the same time, there are these sweet memories that Jesse has with him. There are pieces of advice that he gives her that she keeps coming back to. And I really would like to see Pa in particular on a movie screen because I can see him being portrayed as this like really young, handsome, like rugged kind of dad who has these moments of charm, but who is potentially like this deeply troubled, maybe mentally ill man who's struggling with some demons and really has like no sense of reality. And they sort of touch on that because at the end of the book, you know, she's now living back in Clifton, but like they're going to go to this modern school with her family. And she's like, yeah, Pa has to see a psychiatrist. And she's like, yeah. And the psychiatrist thought it would be good for Pa to ease into living in 1996. Like Pa still has trouble talking about the modern world. And I'm like, this is like really heavy for a kid to like, right. Think that like your father is like lost touch with reality and like, is sort of like not going to be able to like integrate back into the real world. I want to know from Ma's perspective, like life for women in 1840 is very different from life for women in 1996 like why was she so cool with sort of like going to like a more subservient time you know like her Mm -hmm. her, she's sort of like the she was a nurse in her real life and now she's kind of like the secret midwife there's definitely like a different like gender dynamic in the 19th century than there is in the 20th century and it is really it, it kind of like blows my mind that like a woman would be like yeah I'm okay with doing that that's cool I'm in love with you so let me give up my whole life right and like live in this village and like never talk to my family again and right. be, un- con- be under constant observation by strangers yeah yeah I want to know more about her parents and I I wonder if Margaret Peterson Haddix had like a whole like story in her head about what they were really like and just, you know, couldn't really put it in a book for kids. Cause it seems that way. Like there are so many clues about what they're like and sort of what their life was like before and what their mindsets are like. And I would like to explore that more. So that was sort of my adult take on it. Overall, Rebecca has coming back to running out of time for maybe the 16th, 17th time, but maybe as an adult this time around, has it made you love the book more or has it ruined it for you? Or at least perhaps shown you that it doesn't hold up in certain ways. It definitely doesn't hold up as an adult reader. I would not, there are some kids books that I would be like, I would recommend adults read. I'm fan, like, I think the Phantom Tollbooth you can read as an adult and you really appreciate it. I would say that this is very clearly for kids. I would definitely give it to a kid to read now though. I still think it's like a fun, exciting, good read. Although I wonder if for a 21st century 13 or nine year old or whoever, whatever, if 1996 is too long ago, like Mm -hmm. they will 
not quite understand the world that existed in 1996 because it feels it does feel really far removed from 2019 something that I was thinking about because like you I I think that I was a little bit disappointed in the reread I have such fond memories of the book and of like the years of good memories that it gave me like I remember the good memories that this book gave me so I, I would never say that it's a book that I wouldn't recommend but I think something that had me thinking a lot while I was finishing the book is that the premise was so mind-blowing to me the fact that like people would be watching just like humans going about their lives and that's different now and I say this as a huge reality tv fan um I watch a lot of reality tv I have basically since it started like I was watching Survivor and Big Brother with my mom the very first seasons which wasn't long after I read this book I think that living in the time that we do where it's not that unusual to watch people on reality TV or for people to like vlog their daily lives. This does feel slightly less groundbreaking and shocking to me now. Um, And I think a kid growing up in 2019 would maybe not be as surprised or like intrigued by the concept of being watched because a lot of people today choose to be watched. I mean, obviously the historical thing makes it different, but I just... I just think that this is not as novel as a concept in 2019. And I I also think it's interesting, again, as somebody who loves reality TV now, I think it's interesting that I was so attached to that part of this book as a kid. Like, I thought that was fascinating. And now, you know, sort of my, like, guilty pleasures are all shows where we're just kind of watching people live their lives in different settings. That is definitely true. I I think the book is dated. Like, it is really it is really dated. I mean, even like Clifton village is not like particularly like the tourist part of it is like not particularly high tech. Like they're just kind of watching them like through two way mirrors, basically. It's not something that kids today would be excited to go see. And I think that makes it hard to feel that invested in the book because it's like, well, this isn't even that cool by our standards. So like, what are we even doing here? That's a good point. I didn't think about that. I'm emotionally low tech myself. So like I didn't think about the updates, but I do think that like, I do think that it would also be hard for a kid to even conceptualize having to look for a phone. Like Mm -hmm. when, when in, when in the real life, like a big, huge plot line here is that she needs to find a phone to call fake Isaac Neely. And like, now you just ask a person for a cell phone and make the call and that's it. It's done. Like you, you solve the plot really quickly. And she could find out that he had actually died several years ago and that she was being catfished mm-hmm. by, uh, I also don't understand how this guy knew she was looking for Isaac Neely broke into the family's home that had gotten the phone number from after that Isaac Neely's old phone number after he died was there when she made the call and then rented an apartment, a fake apartment and like brought her to the fake apartment to kill her. There, there's a lot. There's yeah. a lot that went on that, behind the scenes that I think maybe feels off. We're being asked to believe a lot of things that feel like yeah. a stretch. I think the book generally does not age well in a lot of ways, but I still enjoy it. I still have a lot of fond memories of it, and I'm still glad that I got to come back to it. And it's just yeah. this one. I think is sort of it, the reasons that it doesn't hold up are, are intellectually interesting to me. Yeah. Um, in a way that I think is different than other books that we've done on the podcast. So thank you so much for discussing it with me. Yeah. Other than running out of time, what have you been reading lately um, that you would want to share with our listeners? I'm actually in the middle of Mostly Dead Things by Kristen Arnett, which I highly recommend. It's really good. Uh, I would not give it to a child. I am. I also just finished Conversations with Friends by Sally Rooney, and I read Normal People also by Sally Rooney before that. Okay. I do read, I read a lot. So it's like a long list of of books that I've been trying to get through for the last like few months. Um, Which of the two Sally Rooney's did you prefer? I have to know for my personal interest. Conversations with friends. I I actually thought was much better. Really? Okay. Um, Yeah. I liked normal people a lot. I'm actually glad that I read that one first, but I think that maybe it's just the way that she it's so conversations with friends is written in first person. And I actually think that that was like very helpful because the books are sort of emotionless. Like they're, she's a very like minimalist writer. So you don't really get to see what's going on like inside people, even though that's kind of the whole point, which it's kind of hard to explain, but I just, I was really just more drawn to the characters and conversations with friends. And I, I kind of 
maybe maybe I, I didn't like the characters in Normal People that much, which maybe was why I was okay to move on to like a new group of people mm-hmm. um, that I thought were really interesting. Which did you prefer? I had a lot of trouble with conversations with friends, actually. I really struggled to get through it. And I enjoyed Normal People a lot. And um, I think sometimes it's just a matter of like the time that you're choosing to read something and like what you read before, what you read after. I would like to come back to conversations with friends because I feel like it's a 50-50 split in people that I've spoken to, like who likes which one better. But I preferred normal people a lot to conversations with friends. So you never know. But listeners, I'll include links to all of the books that Rebecca mentioned in the show notes in case you want to check them out. I will also include a link to Running Out of Time. I do think it's fun to revisit. I will, of course, also include a link to Rebecca's forthcoming book, Good Things Happen to People You Hate, which is coming out in October. You can go ahead and pre-order it now if you're listening to this in real time. If it's past October, just go order it. It's already out. You might as well just give it a read. I definitely am going to. And thank you so much, Rebecca, for being on the show. I'm sure you have a lot of, like book promo stuff happening right now so thank you for taking the time to chat starting (laughs) it's gearing up starting yeah (laughs) thank you so much for having me on this was so fun thanks bye thanks so much for listening to the ssr podcast check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information and be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes behind the scenes inside scoop and some good old-fashioned book talk find us at ssr pod on instagram and twitter and search ssr podcast on facebook to join the group to reach out directly you can send me an email at hello ssrpod at gmail.com if you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast. <laughs>